I think the human element sometimes gets lost. So understanding the people who do science really are just people. And that means that scientists and science itself is flawed because anything humans do is just flawed. We're not perfect. Even though, you know, we at least try to be rational, that doesn't mean we're always going to be rational. This is Mia de los Reyes. My name is Mia de los Reyes. She's a third year graduate student in the astronomy department at Caltech. I interviewed her in June of last year. When she isn't reflecting deeply on how to remove obstacles for people in science, she studies the history of the universe by looking at galaxies. I really like galaxies in part because they're so messy. We have a course on galaxies. Mm -hmm. I teed that class this last nice, year. Nice. And the students would complain like, but is there like an equation that describes that? Like what, <laughs> why are we learning this, you know, observed mm -hmm. relationship? Like what's the point of this observation? And we don't know. It's just so messy and complicated mm -hmm. that there are no really easy answers in galaxies. And mm -hmm. I think that's what I really like about it. Mia is also active on Twitter and spreads the good news of galaxies to her more than 4,000 followers with summaries of the latest research and funny jokes. In this same style, she also wrote a whole set of poems advertising the astronomy department's happy hour on Fridays. She usually starts from a classic poem and changes the subject to something related to astronomy. With the help of some of the other grad students, I helped adapt it to be about the supermassive black hole observed by the EHT, the Event Horizon Telescope. The Event Horizon Telescope, or EHT, is a collection of telescopes around the globe that simulate an Earth-sized telescope capable of imaging supermassive black holes. The EHT generated the famous black hole image from April of 2019, showing how large-scale collaboration brought astronomical research far past the boundary of what's possible to see with our own eyes. Shall I compare thee to beer on Friday? <laughs> Thou art less tasty and less temperate. Rough winds shake not the palm trees of LA. I'm Heidi Klumpa. And I'm Sophia Chiron. This is Not My Thesis, a podcast where we understand science via the hearts and minds creating it. In the third chapter of Not My Thesis, Mia de los Reyes explains her work on galaxies lurking in the empty parts of space. She also explains the difficulty of looking at dark and distant objects, and how she builds up her community to find joy in the hard work of peeling back the unknown. So long as thou accretes and eyes can see, long past beer hour, we'll toast the EHT. When you picture an astronomer, you might imagine someone pointing a telescope at a familiar celestial object. Sun, moon, stars, planets. But it turns out that picture has a few problems. First, not every astronomer even looks at the sky. You can broadly categorize astronomers into two flavors. There's the observers, which that's what I am. So we're the ones who use actual data. Sorry, not to, not to like crap on the theorists or anything, but we use data from telescopes, from other instruments, etc., mm. to measure things about the universe. And then we try to interpret them. And then you have your the theorists and you can, you know, have computational theorists. You can have straight up pen and paper math heavy theorists who start from basic principles of physics and try to build up a picture of the universe and how it works. Another problem with our image of astronomers? Humans aren't the only ones pointing the telescopes. We have this really massive facility called the Zwicky Transient Facility, ZTF, mm. which is designed to just take pictures of the sky like on a pretty fast cadence, multiple times a night, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then to look for changes in the sky and figure out what those are. If they're like new kinds of supernovae or like gravitational wave events, that's sort of the big, the big thing right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> ZTF is one of many robotic telescopes around the world. It can detect the temporary guests of the night sky, which appear like new stars, shine brightly, and then fade away. 
These are also called transients. Transients can be things like supernovae, the explosions of dying stars that have run out of fuel. A third problem with our picture of astronomers might be the kinds of things they point their telescopes at. At least for me, when I've looked in a telescope, it's usually at a nearby planet or the moon. In reality, our solar system is a small part of a galaxy, a collection of stars and planets we call the Milky Way. There are innumerable moons and other planets around other stars within this galaxy, and still other galaxies altogether. Astronomers can be looking at any one of these things. At Caltech in particular, many astronomers look at exoplanets. So planets outside the solar system, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. planets around other stars. So finding them, characterizing them, looking for life on other exoplanets. And then there are people like me who do like side stuff on cosmology, which is, you know, the overall shape of the universe or mm -hmm. what I do, galaxies, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. stuff like that. From among these big and important questions in astronomy, Mia has chosen to focus on galaxies. Galaxies are the star-making factories of the universe, collections of gas held together by gravity, which slowly turns these raw materials into stars. In order to make stars, you need gas. And the most, the most common kind of gas in the universe is hydrogen. So it has to be very cold gas. So when I say cold, I mean like on the order of 10 to 100 Kelvin. For reference, 10 Kelvin is minus 263 degrees Celsius, or minus 440 degrees Fahrenheit. In a 10 Kelvin chamber on Earth, there would be no gas, because everything, even oxygen and nitrogen, would freeze. Yeah, so really cold. Because <laughs> if it gets much hotter than that, then it's too hot to collapse gravitationally, and then you can't get any stars. Ah, okay, so you need yeah. a balance of like gravitational attraction versus like I guess thermal energy, just like pushing exactly. Things around. Yeah, so you get a star when gravity wins out. Stars are dense balls of material releasing energy and light as their atoms collide. But to compel the atoms, which usually avoid one another, to collide, you need a very strong force like gravity. This is easier for gravity to do when the molecules in the gas are moving slower, which happens when the gas is colder. As we mentioned before, most star formation happens inside galaxies. These collections of cold gas help stars form, and they come in all shapes and sizes. Our Milky Way is a pretty special kind of galaxy. It's a really nice looking spiral galaxy. So it has the pretty spiral arms, and it looks like a flat disk. But we think that it was actually built up from much smaller pieces, like Lego blocks. And these Lego blocks were called dwarf galaxies, and they don't look anything like what the spiral, the nice spiral Milky Way does now. So there are these like sort of blobs of gas and stars, and if you look at them, you're just kind of like, oh, this is not pretty at all. Some of them you can't even see gas, so it just looks like a bunch of dots, like a cluster of stars, and that's kind of it. Um, but th that's how we think the Milky Way built up, by sort of glomming on all of these smaller pieces into one bigger galaxy over time. Despite living in one of these galaxies, most of us know very little about them. So when we think of the Milky Way, it's kind of easy to think, oh, it's this massive thing that's not going to change. Mm. But that's not true. We know that gal smaller galaxies are being eaten by the Milky Way, like as we speak. These mm. smaller galaxies are becoming incorporated into the Milky Way. Mm. We know that in a couple billion years, the Andromeda Galaxy, which is about the same size as the Milky Way, is going to come crashing through the Milky Way and the entire system is going to rearrange itself into a sphere-like structure instead of a disk. Galaxies can eat each other when one galaxy pulls star-making material from one of its cosmic neighbors through gravitational attraction. The collision between Andromeda, a neighboring galaxy, and the Milky Way will happen in about 4 billion years, as a result of their motion through space at about 70 miles per second. Even if you've never heard of the Andromeda Galaxy, you are moving steadily towards it. We know that galaxies are really dynamic environments. They're, they're ecosystems, like sort of in the same way that 
in a forest, you have trees that live and grow and then die, and all of those things influence the other trees around them, the animals around them, mm. even the soil. It's the same way in galaxies. Mm. So stars are being born, they're living, they're dying, they're influencing each other. This hubbub of activity is what makes galaxies so interesting to Mia, but also makes them difficult to study. In the classes Mia has taken at Caltech, she's noticed a sharp divide. When we come to Caltech and you join the Astro PhD program, there are a bunch of different core classes you have to take. And some of them are pretty math heavy, like pretty exact. So these are things like radiative transfer, which is just a class all about how light passes through things. And then we have a class on stars. And stars are actually, they're complicated, but they are kind of straightforward. There are these like basic equations that will describe the structure of a star. But then when you get to galaxies, galaxies become just ridiculously complicated. Despite stars and galaxies being grounded in the same physics, scientists can't study stars and galaxies in the same way. This is because it is difficult to describe all of galaxy physics at once. It's like how you can easily calculate where a billiard ball goes after it hits the side of a pool table, but it gets harder when you consider one billiard ball hitting another, or add even more billiard balls, or pile your pool table with basketballs, footballs, and rearview mirror dice. It's not that physics explains stars better than it explains galaxies. Rather, it's difficult to concisely summarize the full set of interactions and the results that make up a galaxy. I loved hearing Mia describe the challenging complexity of her work because I think it highlights a paradox at the heart of scientific research. Why, after spectacular technical advances and centuries of careful thought, do we not know everything about the universe? For some unknowns, the reason is obvious. Maybe we haven't studied it yet, or studying it is expensive or time-consuming, or the right tool doesn't exist. But something could be unknown for other reasons. First, it might be effectively impossible to keep track of all the parts of a system, because you'll never have a tool to measure something like the location of every atom, or even the computer memory to store them. Or maybe it's because the underlying system is governed by probability and chance, so at best you could list all the things that might happen, but not which happens for certain. Or maybe it's because some of the outcomes are unexpected properties of the whole system. This is called emergent behavior, named for the way that unexpected results emerge from complex systems. Complex systems usually have lots of parts with nonlinear or really sensitive relationships between them. A complex system with emergent properties is more than the sum of its parts, similar to how a single transistor seems unremarkable, but multiple transistors become a powerful computer when wired together. I think the unexpected side effect of all this is that researchers, with the same goal of understanding the unknown, approach their problems very differently. And saying, I don't know, can be a very scientifically sound statement especially when you have to understand the problem very deeply to explain why you don't or possibly can't know. In the harder to solve unknowable problems, your goal might be to merely tame or observe what is going on rather than explain it fully. At least in the case of complex systems like galaxies, this is an important first step. Mia studies galaxies. And to understand her project, we need to zoom out a bit and start with a picture of the overall shape of the universe. Or rather, how gravity has arranged matter and space over the past 14 billion years. On, like, on the largest scales, I guess you can think of the universe as sort of a cosmic web. It turns out that matter just sort of naturally organized itself into these filamentary structures. The fact that we can know things about something so large and so distant is truly shocking to me. It turns out, this knowledge comes to us by the fruitful collaboration of observational and theoretical astronomers. We can basically take pictures of the entire sky, right? And mm. we can also measure distances to galaxies. Mm. So by counting the number of galaxies and measuring the distances to them, we can map out 
where galaxies are located. Mm, galaxies mm-hmm. are like arranged in lines, and then there's yeah. places where there's nothing, yeah, and then there's exactly. places where there's lots of galaxies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then this is also confirmed in theory. I would say the most successful model that we have for describing the universe today is what's called Lambda CDM. So it stands for Lambda, which is dark energy, and then CDM is cold dark matter. And if you put those ingredients together and let gravity run, and you give it some small fluctuations in density, just automatically over time, arrange itself. And we can see this in massive simulations of like huge fractions of the universe mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when we just put in dark matter. Even though dark matter and dark energy are fuzzy concepts, it's exciting that they are useful tools to explain some of what we observe around us. You might expect that galaxies, which require gas to produce stars, are located in the filaments of the universe where matter collects. And you'd be right, mostly. Most galaxies live like in the filaments, but some of the, those galaxies don't. They live outside of this web. And those are called void galaxies because they live in these massive cosmic voids where there's just nothing. Mm-hmm. They're mostly by themselves. And so what, I, what I'm hoping to study for my thesis is dwarf galaxies that live in these voids. So what they look like, what's inside of them, um, how their chemical composition changes, and how that might be different from galaxies, dwarf galaxies that are closer to the Milky Way, which live in the filaments mm. of the cosmic web. Mia's project to understand these unusual dwarf or very small galaxies and how they formed is very exciting and very challenging. Many of the difficulties Mia faces are not unique to her project, but shared with the entire field. Observational astronomy is hard because you can't run experiments. At best, you can watch what is already happening. We can't run experiments in the way that you can in pretty much every other science. All we have is light. So everything that we get, or that at least the kind of astronomy that I do, everything that we're able to detect or measure, all of that comes from light. And it would be really nice to just, you know, be able to go to a galaxy and be like, okay, I want you to try doing this thing now mm-hmm. <laughs> and see what happens. Yeah. But the long time scales, the fact that, you know, these galaxies won't change for billions of years at a time. And then the fact that we can't run any experiments ourselves. We have to figure out what's happening just from these snapshots that we get. Working from snapshots is difficult for a variety of reasons. It's like comparing photographs of a young woman and an older man to infer the aging process. Not all of the differences between the two photographs are due to age, and they still provide no information on the intermediate states or even how far apart in the aging process those two photos are. There's the additional problem that even the snapshots they can take of galaxies and the stars forming inside them are not as clear as they could be. It's really hard to observe stars forming directly because stars form in the dustiest regions. This is the dust or star-forming material held together by the gravity of the galaxy. Mm. So they block all the light, which Bummer. is just, right, exactly, classic galaxy. <laughs> just hiding their secrets. <laughs> but yeah, so that's some of it. Um, some of it is that because we're in the Milky Way, the closest things that we can see are in the Milky Way. Mm. And then we see them through the disk of the galaxy, which is complicates things quite a lot. It's hard to know if the way stars form in the Milky Way is the same as the way stars form in other galaxies. To image these distant and dim objects, a telescope needs to collect a lot more light than just your eyes can. To do this, you need large mirrors that collect a lot of light and refocus it onto your detector. One of the telescopes that I use, for instance, the Keck telescope, which is located on Mauna Kea in Hawaii, Mm -hmm. it's pretty big. It's a 10-meter class telescope, so the diameter of the mirror is 10 meters. So the light-collecting thing is 10 meters across. Yeah, exactly. 
This isn't big just because 10 meters or over 30 feet gives you a circle that covers half a basketball court. This is improbably big. You can't actually make a 10 meter diameter mirror because it will sag microscopically under its own weight and these small deviations from being perfectly smooth make it harder to collect an accurate picture of the night sky, the same way wavy mirrors at a carnival distort your appearance. Keck's mirror is actually many small mirror segments, precisely shaped and arranged to act as one mirror, and then individually controlled by small motors. There's another challenge to building telescopes like Keck, finding the right place on Earth to put them. From a purely astronomical perspective, Mauna Kea is ideal for Keck Observatory, and a proposed 30-meter telescope because of its lack of light pollution and relatively non-turbulent atmosphere, as the gentle slope of the shield volcano allows air to pass over it relatively undisturbed. But for indigenous Hawaiians, Mauna Kea is a sacred site and has been a controversial location for telescopes since the 1970s, when the first of the now 13 telescopes was built on the mountain. Since building new telescopes is both technically and culturally fraught, most astronomers do their work on the shared pool of existing telescopes, which brings logistical challenges. Getting time on it is competitive and hard. And then, if, especially with climate change too, the, as the weather gets worse and mm -hmm. more unpredictable, if it's rainy or if it's cloudy mm -hmm. or too humid, then you can't make your measurement. It turns out so many people want to use this telescope that it's competitive to even get time on the schedule. And even then, there's no guarantee that your scheduled time is a good time to use the telescope. Mia and her research advisor put together a detailed proposal to request time on the Keck telescope. We just received time from our proposal. So we, you know, wrote up, you know, this is why we think this question is interesting mm -hmm. with some scientific background and we justified like why we have to use this telescope. Why mm -hmm. does it have to be this instrument? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If we get this instrument, what dates would we want? Right. And that's based on which targets we're looking at in the sky because the Earth, as the Earth Moves around, moves around the sun, there's different stars that mm -hmm. are available. Mm -hmm. And then we have to justify like whether or not we can observe when there's a moon, or like a full moon out, mm -hmm. how much moonlight is allowed for us to take our measurements, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then if it's deemed acceptable and if it fits in with their schedule, then they'll give you the time. But Caltech is lucky because we have a pretty direct connection with the Keck telescopes. Mm -hmm. And on other telescopes, like if I were to propose for time on a not Caltech-affiliated telescope, if I, like, on something like the Hubble, the Hubble is, I think, 40 times oversubscribed or something like that. 40 times? Yeah, it's Yikes. definitely on the order of magnitude of, like, 10. Hubble is a telescope in space, so it has the highly desirable ability to collect light without that light being distorted by the Earth's atmosphere. In 2018, the Hubble was oversubscribed 12 to 1, which means that for every person using it, there were 11 more who had something they wanted to use the telescope for. So, observational astronomy is challenging, for the many reasons that Mia has described so far. You can't run experiments. The conditions for optimal observing depend on both time of year and the weather. We view most things through our distorting atmosphere on the disk of the Milky Way, and you need rare telescopes. But choosing to look at small galaxies in these voids of the universe poses an additional problem. Things that are in voids are far away from us because we're in one of these, you know, filamentary structures. Mm -hmm. And because these dwarf galaxies are small, they're just not very bright. Mm. And so you sort of have to, you have to have a dedicated telescope just sit on it for a while, like a couple hours. Hmm. And I think one of the biggest problems is that there are not that many, but there just aren't that many telescopes with that kind of capability. So dwarf galaxies and voids are hard to see, being both far away and dim. To get as much information as they can from the light we do receive, Mia and her team will use the latest technology. They're just really interesting targets for this new kind of instrument called an integrated field unit. There are 
several different ways you can take astronomical observations, but sort of the two most common ways are images and spectroscopy. So you either can take pictures, uh, just like you would, you know, step outside and take a picture of mm-hmm. a tree or a selfie or whatever. Mm-hmm. And there's spectroscopy. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, taking some object and then spreading its light out, spreading the light from that object out into a bunch of different wavelengths. As an analogy of this, colors we perceive with our eyes are an example of different wavelengths of visible light. When we look at our surroundings, our eyes capture the different wavelengths of light reflected by a nearby object, and our brains put the pattern of colors together to identify the object. When the object in question is a dwarf galaxy, the exact wavelengths of light captured by the telescope can tell us what the galaxy is made of, whether hydrogen or other chemical elements. And each pixel in the image isn't just one color, it's a whole mixture of colors, or in this case elements, which is revealed in the spectrum. And so this new type of instrument can take an image and a spectrum at the same time. So at every single pixel in the image, you get a spectrum. Mm -hmm. And so that can tell you a lot of information about the internal dynamics of whatever you're looking at. So from a spectrum, you can measure something like how fast something is moving like away from you or towards you. You can measure stuff like the chemical composition Mm -hmm. at that specific point. And so if you have all this information, you can put it together into a picture of what's happening inside the galaxy. Mm -hmm. So not just, you know, oh, this part looks brighter than that other part, but why? Is it forming stars there? Are the stars different in composition than this other region? And if so, why? Understanding the chemistry of a galaxy can tell you about its history. As Mia explained before, galaxies fuse together hydrogen atoms, the lightest and simplest element, into heavier elements, which make up stars. Looking at which elements are present in a galaxy, and knowing how heavy they are, gives you some idea of how many fusion reactions occurred, or how long the galaxy worked on them. Even better, If you know the location of the specific elements in the galaxy, then you know where the star-forming activity took place. One approach Mia could use to study these dwarf galaxies is to look at the locations of heavier elements, like metals. Divide the galaxy into rings, Mm -hmm. starting at the center, like Mm -hmm. concentric rings, and then measure the amount of heavy metals in each ring. We think that these heavy metals have to be produced by stars. Mm -hmm. So if there are more metals at the outskirts, then something had to have pushed them out there or they were formed there to begin with. Mm -hmm. But if there are more metals at the beginning, then that's probably where they all formed. So Mm -hmm. the galaxy formed from the inside out. The metals are sort of like a history that you can see. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the group that I work in here at Caltech, it's actually called the Galactic Archaeology Group. Because we use the chemical composition of stars to try to figure out the history of what happened in those galaxies a long time ago. Beyond that, we might just have to see what the data look like and and just play around with it until we figure out what we're doing. There are a lot of interesting questions about the history of these small galaxies and voids. While other galaxies have built up like Lego blocks, why is this single Lego block alone by itself? And if it needs a supply of material to continue to produce stars, how does it sustain itself in the void, so far away from the concentrated gas and dust in the filaments? And so one of the hypotheses for what this, where this is coming from is that there are in fact, filaments of material even in the voids. Mm. They're just not massive enough and there aren't any stars there. There's nothing like really luminous there. It's just gas that's hard to see if there's no light source. As Mia mentioned before, almost all that astronomers have to work with is the light that reaches us. Looking for something that doesn't glow in a place without starlight to illuminate things makes it incredibly difficult. But a more sensitive tool, which can detect the location of metals, could make these filaments feeding galaxies visible for the first time. One thing that people have predicted if, is that if these galaxies are feeding on gas somehow, that there should be a blob where, where the gas is being fed in. Hmm. And that blob should have way fewer metals than the rest of the galaxy. 
because this is like pure gas without any metals coming in. When I heard the learned astronomer, when the proofs, the figures were ranged in columns before me, when I was shown the charts and diagrams to add, divide, and measure them. When I, sitting, heard the astronomer where he lectured with much applause in the lecture room, how soon unaccountable I became tired and sick, till rising and gliding out I wandered off by myself in the mystical, moist night air, and from time to time up in perfect silence at the stars. Why do you think um, this question is important? I mean, I think sort of the easy answer and the answer that I'm sure many people agree with is that astronomy just is not important. In the grand scheme of things, astronomers don't help people. Like the work that we do does not is not directly applicable to anything here on Earth. But in other ways, I think that makes it more valuable. I mean, you can point to instances where radio astronomers, for instance, are the reason that we have Wi-Fi. So I do think that, you know, even astronomy can drive technological advancements. But I think beyond that, the fact that it's not important is what makes it kind of cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think it is just really human nature to try to push farther and to see further and know more and learn more. And I think that astronomy really embodies that. We have outreach events and we have tons of people just come to hear people talk about space because they just think it's cool. And I think, yeah, I think the sheer number of people we have coming to these events, like, that's really exciting to me. Uh, in, in my mind, that makes it important, even if it's a different kind of importance than other sciences. Mm -hmm. Science outreach is usually described as something that scientists do for non-scientists. To share some of the cool and exciting stuff that maybe helps you understand the world more or just find things to be more beautiful. But it's also a moment where non-scientists communicate to scientists what they think is interesting or important. It really helps me remember like why I'm doing this. It's really easy to get sucked into the day-to-day -day work and be like, wow, this sucks. Astronomy sucks. And then, <laughs> and then you go and you tell a member of the public, oh, this is what I study. And to me, it's pretty mundane at this point. Oh, I study galaxies, whatever. Uh -huh. And then my Lyft driver or the person, like the cashier at the <laughs> Trader Joe's or something will be like, galaxies, wow, that's so cool. And then it reminds me, wow, yeah, it is actually really cool, the stuff that I do, and it's worthwhile. Caltech's astronomy department has been incredibly broad in their thinking about how to reach people outside their scientific community. We also have astronomy on tap events mm -hmm. where we go out to local pubs, well, a local pub in Pasadena, and people give a couple of short talks, and you know, there's beer drinking and a trivia, like a space trivia. And then we also have a bunch of sort of every now and then events. We do this event called like Sidewalk Astronomy, where we'll just go into Old Town Pasadena and set up a telescope on the sidewalk and like just point it at the moon or something, something uh -huh. really bright. And, you know, people will come by and look through the telescopes mm. and talk to us a little bit about space. Uh, we've done science train events where we go on the LA Metro for like a full day and we hold up signs that say, ask an astrophysicist. And people will come up to us and ask, you know, can you tell us about, you know, the picture of the black hole? Mia's passion for outreach comes not just from her love for astronomy, but also her conviction about who science is meant for. In general, there are just a lot of obstacles to becoming a scientist. And that's especially true if you don't look like 
what a typical scientist looks like. I think some of the best outreach experiences I've had are when I've been talking to like little girls and especially little girls who look a little more like me who aren't necessarily white or and maybe they're not from a rich family maybe they don't speak English as their first language um, for them to come to these events and see someone who at least looks like them a little bit like them. One of Mia's favorite outreach memories highlights the value of showcasing who can be a scientist. So this was during one of the stargazing and lecture events I don't actually remember which one. In general when we do these panels it's usually half to majority women identifying. It was one of those rare panels where I was the only woman. Mm-hmm. And that was fine. Like, I knew all of the other people on the panel, and they were nice enough. But for some reason, during the entire Q&A session, some of the audience members, it felt like they didn't believe some of the things I was saying as much, or they didn't take me as seriously. Mm. And there was, you know, an incident where some of, the, some of my co-panel members were talking to each other while I was trying to answer somebody's questions. Like, a few a few of these, like, small, like, really small incidents. Mm-hmm. But they kept happening throughout this, you know, one to two hour long panel. Mm-hmm. And by the end, I was so tired. I was so fed up. I was really angry. Mm-hmm. And then one of my friends who had been sitting in the crowd came up to me after and said, I hope you know that there was a little girl sitting right in front of me. And she was so excited that you were there. Every time you said something, she was like, look, she knows things. <laughs> And that, like, really just got to me. I was like, no. (laughs) Um, It's just a reminder, again, that, like, the representation really was important, especially, Mm -hmm. like, in that one instance, but maybe to other people, too, who haven't said it out loud. In my experience, I've learned not to have scientific heroes. Um, that oh. idolizing scientists is not a good idea because scientists are human. Mm. And just because someone is a brilliant, whatever, brilliant technical researcher, it doesn't mean they were necessarily good people who you want to idolize. As young researchers, graduate students are looking for mentors and role models. But as Mia articulates, we should think carefully about how to look up to and value a scientist. Um, I do think there are lots of scientists I admire. I think my advisor is somebody that I admire a lot. Mm. I work with Evan Kirby, who is just a really good and genuinely nice person who cares a lot about not just the research, but also teaching and mentoring. Um, And he also does really cool research on the side. Also, he can just look at a spectrum and know what's wrong with the way I've fit it. Like, he'll be like, oh, there's a problem with the wavelength solution. I'm like, how did you know? (laughs) I admire um, some of the other mentors that I've had. Like Janice Lee, who is a staff scientist here at Caltech. Mm. I worked with her in undergrad, and she is honestly the reason that I'm in astronomy. So she noticed that it was like my first time living away from North Carolina, like away from my family by any significant distance for a while, Um, because I did like a summer internship with her. But she noticed that I was feeling that I was like, I guess, looking kind of sad. Mm -hmm. And so she brought me some Filipino food that her grandma had made. And she's, yeah, she was like, I I don't know if it's like the kind that you like, but I thought maybe it would help you feel better. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I think because of her willingness to see me as a person, I was like, wow, astronomy is great and full of people like Janice. They're also the people who operate the telescopes and the people who do administration in the department. And Grisela, who is the woman who cleans the office, like the entire like second floor of my building. Like if a scientist takes a break for a day, whatever. I take breaks all the time. Like, Mm -hmm. sometimes I'm just not going to go to work today. That's fine. 
I, my, I'm burned out or whatever. Mm-hmm. But if any one of those people stopped working, like, <laughs> it would be a mess. <laughs> Literally. Yeah, it would, it would, yeah, the floor would be disgusting. I admired those people a lot, like, just as much as any scientific mentors I've ever had. Mia's memories of everyone who has touched her scientific career reveal the interdependence of the scientific community, which mirrors the interconnected ecosystem of a galaxy. This is also a theme in one of Mia's favorite book series, The Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings is, as a story, a complete inversion of a lot of fantasy tropes, which is weird because we tend to think of Lord of the Rings as sort of like the archetype for fantasy. But in a lot of ways, it's the reverse opposite. It's not a coming-of-age story. There is no, you know, great hero that wins through by, like, dint of being really strong Hmm. or powerful. The whole point is, like, an inversion of power. It's not Aragorn, the chosen one, who is actually the one who defeats Sauron. Hmm. It's Frodo, who is... who's just done it because no one else will. Mm -hmm. And that it's the smallest people. It's the hobbits who have been, you know, peacefully chilling in the Shire for couple hundreds of years and not really caring about the outside world it's those people it's not one of the great like men or wizards or elves who does it Mm -hmm. i think that means yeah that has always resonated with me this idea that you don't need to be the most powerful to have the biggest impact I've always sort of been aware that, you know, having the last name Delos Reyes and being a woman in astronomy, I've, yeah, I've always sort of known that that when people first meet me, they might not take me as seriously as others. At NC State, so in undergrad, Mm -hmm. I was one of two women in a class of 40. And in a lot of my classes, I was the only woman. I think we started out with like four or five women and then one by one, they switched majors. They decided to do other things. Um, And the vast majority of the men in my classes were white men. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And at first that didn't bother me. Like, I had taken physics in high school. I knew I liked physics. I knew this was what I wanted to major in. Even though Mia knew she was where she wanted to be, it wasn't clear to her whether other people wanted her to be there. Discrimination and bias certainly happen along a spectrum, but what can be surprising is how frustrating even small experiences can be, done actively or passively. Over time, I realized I wasn't getting invited to study groups. Um, people would stop talking when I was around. Uh, this was in part because, like, every now and then I would hear an insensitive joke of some kind, and I'd be like, hey, let's not do that. And then after a while, I realized people would stop, like, <laughs> having conversations around me. We had this, like, lab class where we had to have a different partner every week. I was usually pretty early to this class, and so I would, you know, start setting up, and whenever my partner came in, every week, it was a different partner, Mm -hmm. and they would always check mine again, and they would never check each other's in the same, with the same level of scrutiny. I think going into undergrad, I, I really, I really didn't, like, understand the point of women in science organizations or minorities in science organizations. I was like, this is, I don't need this. I'm just gonna be good at my job, and it'll be enough. Yeah, exactly. Like, I... That's for, you know, other people. But then I realized, no, this this re- is real. Like, this bias is still real, even in really small ways. But I think that's part of why these things are so important to me. Why it's important to do outreach for the sake of broadening who science is meant for. 
um, and why it's important to consider who science is meant for now and making it more inclusive. Mm-hmm. Because I remember what that was like and how over time I just stopped talking to people in my department. Mm. Once I actually talked to a professor about this, I mentioned that you know people weren't <laughs> being very friendly to me um, and people were like saying these things in the like physics lounge or whatever. And they were just like, well, it's just like that. Some of them are just like that. I think after that, I sort of just put my head down and I was like, I'm just going to get through undergrad. I'm going to finish and go to grad school and I won't have to come back here again. And I I think after that, I was like, I'm I'm never going to just do that again, to just focus on survival, my own survival. Because there were other women too. And if I could like go back and do that entire period of my life again, I would have gotten to know them. I would have tried less, like, try, like, I would have, I don't know, cared less about my own exceptionalism and tried instead to connect with other people, right? And try to, instead of trying to make myself, well, you know, these other women, they're leaving the major because they just can't hack it. I would have, I think, yeah, I really, like, <laughs> looking back, I really wish I could change that, mm-hmm. that entire mindset, because it took me so long to break out of it. Mm-hmm. And Mia does put a lot of work into this. For her, it's an active choice to continue to invest. I'm on the leadership committee for the Women in Physics, Math, Astronomy organization. So we do a lot of, you know, programming for that aims to, you know, help support women in the physics, math, astronomy division. And I realize that every time I do one of these events, like every time I help organize something or take some time out of my work day, that's time I'm not doing research, which... I don't know. I I think I would be more concerned about that had I not already lived through this period where I only focused on myself. Yeah, and now I just never. It's not worth it to me to do that again. Hmm. Like if I if I can't do these other things, then there's no point in me being at grad school, I think. Though each scientist may experience some struggle related to their identity, these come on top of difficulties faced by nearly all researchers. I think science is, you know, at its core, it is kind of drudgery. Like, there are days when you're just like, I pipetting things? I don't know, is that a thing you do in your lab? Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes it is. <laughs> or, I, you know, coding is can be pretty tedious if it's like a thing that you don't want to code. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. People, I think think that scientists know what they're doing and that it's always, you know, a eureka moment. It's always moments of discovery. But it's actually just a lot of failure. It's failing, like, many, many times. And eventually, maybe you get somewhere and maybe you don't. And maybe you get lucky. There's a lot of uncertainty in research. The uncoupling of output from effort, or the inevitable mismatch of ambition and achievable, reliable results. And graduate school brings additional challenges, like large opportunity cost in personal life and salary, unclear outcomes and metrics for the degree, and an asymmetric power structure. Together, these can take a significant toll on mental health. A 2018 study in Nature Biotechnology reported rates of anxiety and depression among graduate students that were six times larger than in the general population. Mia has experienced this personally. I just could not leave. I had, I had a lot of things to do, mm. and I knew I had a lot of things to do, and I just couldn't get out of bed I just couldn't like every time I thought about it I just started crying 
and it was just it was really awful i think that some of this is certainly like personal like i need to see a therapist and some of it is the fact that grad school is just really hard Mm -hmm. we're lucky in a lot of ways like we get to set our own hours if i want to skip a day i totally can um and we get to study really cool things Mm -hmm. but yeah it's hard and it's really frustrating and i think that definitely for me like there there have been times when it's gotten really bad like not only could i just not get out of bed but i've you know just wanted to stop existing like to that level and i think that's something that i'm learning how to deal with Mm. but i also don't think i'm alone in dealing with that in grad school and i think that's part of the problem is that we don't talk about these issues enough to really like sit down and be like wow you feel that way me too Mm -hmm. what do we do about it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. even if talking more about it would help having those conversations is difficult this is in large part due to the stigma or ill-formed ideas of weakness attached to mental health struggles but there's another barrier too it's hard to talk about in part because it feels almost selfish right like this idea that like as you say we do get to study really cool things. Like, this is part of the price. Mm. Um, I'm pretty lucky in that I'm, like, financially secure, that kind of thing. But yeah, it it is a lot sometimes. To scientists so used to explaining how and why the world works the way it does, encountering this mystery can be even more befuddling. I think that's... It's almost more challenging because I can't explain why I felt that way. There have definitely been times in undergrad when things got really tough, when I would have like a really hard time making myself do anything but it's never gotten this bad before Mm -hmm. so yeah it's a new challenge i'm gonna learn how to deal with it mia's experiences align with many well-documented trends in science and higher education they're serious and painful but both in spite of and in the midst of that she continues to see beauty in her work earlier in the episode we heard a poem by walt whitman where he talks about astronomers replacing the joy of the night sky with proofs and figures. But Mia sees it differently. One of the reasons that I get so excited about space is not just because, you know, it's pretty, or it reminds me of how empty it is, but because I can put numbers to that. I know just how empty space is. I know that stars are often, you know, at least a couple of light years apart. I think that's also beautiful in its own way, right? Not just looking at a galaxy, but understanding how unique it is and how special it is just for this galaxy to have come to be. I think the quantitative bit actually <laughs> heightens my appreciation quite a lot. In astronomy, it's easy to say, oh, you know, a couple of years apart, whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think it's a very different thing to say, you know, if the, if the Earth is the size of a pea, then the sun is the size of a basketball. Like, I think that's a much more meaningful scale. And then when you think that, you know... If the basketball sun is at the center of the football field, then the Earth is, like, at the end of the football field. If you really sit down and think about it, space is massive. And the numbers help with that. She even jokingly uses astronomy to provide perspective. I think one of the reasons I love astronomy so much is because it's a reminder that, you know, at at the end of the day, nothing really matters that much. Mm. Right? All of your deepest fears, your, you know, the most embarrassing moments you've ever had, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. The stars don't care. (laughs) In the face of so much indifference and so many unknowns, it is not clear how best to respond. But what is clear is your freedom to choose, whether to press on or seek out something else. In Mia's case, whether she is looking at distant and dim objects or investing in her mental health and others, she chooses bravery amidst the unknown, inspired by her vision of what lies beyond the limits of human knowing. 
a lot of it, like, I have no idea because no one has ever taken this kind of data before mm. for these galaxies. So a lot of it will just be us making it up as we go. <laughs> I feel like that's the fun part. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's terrifying because probably, at least in my case, it always means I'm going to try out lots of bad ideas yep. and then hopefully something will work. <laughs> yeah. But it is yours. You do make it. And it's like its own small act of discovery. Yeah. So um. I'm excited. I, I, I have no clue what these will look like at all mm-hmm. or if the data will even be that good. Like, it's possible that these galaxies are just way too dim even with the time that we've got. I think the chances of us seeing something, like, really, like, really interesting, I think that's pretty low. Mm. That's definitely a moonshot for sure. But I do think we'll get some good data about where the metals in this galaxy are located. Continuing to search for an answer, when the answer is far away or elusive, is something we heard about from both Tall and Sham in earlier chapters of Not My Thesis. Tall told us about the green-eyed dragon physics problems, which require months of work before the satisfaction of the simple solution, Sham told us about how he felt his PhD was similar to running a marathon while blindfolded. Mia also describes a PhD as persistence, without knowledge of the destination. Her metaphor is centered around a pastry chef. Claire Saffitz is a pastry chef. She works with um, Bon Appetit, which is a food magazine, but they also have like a YouTube channel. So she's on the show uh, Gourmet Makes. They'll give her some like snack food to try to recreate so one of her first episodes was like twinkies Mm. or skittles or doritos Mm. or pringles and she just tries to recreate it ideally using like non-processed ingredients and the episodes usually follow a pattern so at first she's like okay i'm excited to try it let's go and then like halfway through the episode you're like she she's just like there with her head in her hands like i hate chocolate i can't temper chocolate this is ridiculous and she just gets really frustrated. And then she comes, she goes home for usually like a weekend or something and then comes back and is like, okay, I think I'm ready to try it. And she like eventually gets it to the point where, yeah, it's a pretty good replica of whatever she was trying to produce. And I think it honestly has been a really good model for me in how to deal with that kind of constant failure. She follows a pretty scientific method. She'll like make something, she'll see what went wrong, and then she'll change something. Like if, I don't know, if the marshmallows she made, if the mixture is too watery like what do you add or what do you take away beyond that it's also just a really good model of somebody just dealing with failure (laughs) and what that looks like and the knowledge that like every time you watch one of these episodes you know that by the end she's going to have created something Mm. but they still show the bit in the middle where she has no clue what she's doing and I think to me that's that's really important. It's nice to see somebody else going through that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and know that eventually they make it out to the other side. I was excited to interview Mia since she and I both attended North Carolina State University on something called the Park Scholarship that we never overlapped. I'd read about her many times in the alumni news, and always admired her, even though we never met before this interview. As the Not My Thesis interview that is furthest away from my thesis, I learned a lot. Unfortunately, it's taken almost a year to put this chapter together, but looking back at it a year later, many of the topics we discussed have an even deeper relevance. Making an episode that discusses diversity raised a lot of questions about how to talk about it. For example, if scientists prefer to hear opinions on diversity from real scientists, Do we have to establish Mia's scientific credentials before we take her plans for diversity seriously? Do we undermine our goal of showing women or people of color as scientists 
if they are never allowed to speak about science without also mentioning diversity? How do you amplify voices but also not exhaust them? Can we relieve someone's burden of constantly being a representative but also not erase that part of their identity? When building inclusive communities, it seems important to consider carefully what truly credentials someone to build the systems that will ultimately correct bias in our communities. The More Loving One Looking up at the stars, I know quite well that for all they care, I can go to hell. But on earth, indifference is the least we have to dread from man or beast. How should we like it where stars to burn with a passion for us we could not return? If equal affection cannot be, let the more loving one be me. Admirer as I think I am of stars that do not give a damn, I cannot, now I see them, say I missed one terribly all day. And where stars to disappear and die, I should learn to look at an empty sky and feel its total dark sublime, though this might take me a little time. This episode was produced by me, Heidi Klumpa, with help from Sophia Charun, the hobbit wizard who turns my dust into podcast stars. We'd like to thank everyone who provided invaluable feedback and gravitational influence, especially Anna Ho, Aditi Narayanan, Catherine Plant, and Ollie Stevenson. And many thanks to Mia de los Reyes for agreeing to an interview with a stranger and for inspiring us to improve the world with science, poetry, and acts of kindness. We are still reeling from the fact that the universe has a filamentary shape and can't wait to hear you explain some of what goes on in the empty spaces. And go pack. The music in this episode is from Blue Dot Sessions, including One Little Triumph and Dance of Felt by Piano Mover, Donnelly by Bitters, and Home, Home at Last by Warm Body. The poems in this episode included Walt Whitman's When I Heard the Learned Astronomer, read by Brian Brophy, and W.H. Auden's The More Loving One, read by himself. If you enjoyed hearing Brian Brophy's voice on this recording, you can find his sonorous baritone in the upcoming radio drama Burst, by Rachel Bublitz, available soon on SoundCloud. Not My Thesis is a Caltech Letters podcast, supported by the Moorhoff Stedler Fund and the Student Investment Fund. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud by searching for the Caltech Letters feed. Look for episodes titled NMT. If you'd like to help Not My Thesis reach the voids of the universe, please share it with your friends or leave us a review on iTunes. Even better, send us an email at notmythesis at gmail.com with questions, stories, or possibly even your thesis.